All right, well, uh, good morning to all of you. I know there, are all, there will always be stragglers, but uh, we need to go ahead and get started because we are, we are five minutes past time here. So let me, uh, let me pray for us, and then I'll, uh, I'll read our theme scripture this morning, make a couple of comments, and then we'll talk about Augustine and his controversies. So let's, uh, let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that you are the God of history, that you guide and direct and dispose all things to your glory. And we pray that you would continue to do that. We know that you have a particular care for your church and all of your dealings. And we give you thanks that you are always remembering us for good. We pray, Lord, that as we study once again this, uh, this great man of church history, this man that you gifted so mightily and raised up in such a powerful way, uh, for the good of your church and for the proclamation of the truth of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to be encouraged uh, to stand up for uh, the Lord Jesus, to learn more of him, and help us to, uh, to be more equipped to live a life of godliness and holiness before you. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, if you're coming in, uh, if you're coming in now, there are some outlines over there by Boaz. And so if you want to pick one of those up, I think there are, there are a few left over there. Well, I just want to read um, the, the theme passage that we have here uh, on, on top of your outline, because I think it, uh, it is very appropriate for especially Augustine and his controversies. So I'll just read this. This is from Acts chapter 20, verses 29 and 31, which for those of you who are familiar, uh, this is Paul's address to the Ephesian elders before he's going uh, to Jerusalem for the final time. He's giving really his final words Uh, of encouragement and admonition to these brothers. And he says this, he says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And I think this encapsulates uh, very well a large part of the calling that was on Augustine's life. Uh, providentially. Now, of course, not every Christian is called to this, uh, but some, because of their particular place and station and their giftedness in their lives, are under a particular charge by God to watch over the flock of God, to guard them from error, uh, to protect them from danger, to preserve pure and right doctrine and living. And this was, as we've seen already, uh, very much the calling on Augustine's life, just because of the man that God made him to be. Now, as we've seen already throughout much of uh, this study in ancient church history, uh, this, this uh, fact of controversy, uh, this, this arguing and debating and writing back and forth between opposing parties, uh, this is a mechanism that God has used to teach and to strengthen and to preserve his church from error. And again, Augustine was such a man that was raised up for this task. We've already seen, and we will continue to see, hopefully, that this was a man of uh, gargantuan intellect. Uh, there are not many, uh, not just in Christian theology, not just in the church, but really there are not many in world history that have had the mind of Augustine, of Hippo. He was of gargantuan intellect, able to think deeply and comprehensively about the whole of philosophy and, uh, and theology. Now, uh, I said last time that Augustine wrote 
uh, that we know of, 132 books, uh, many of which are of fairly significant length. Now, many of these books are the products of particular controversies that Augustine had with uh, either individuals uh, or groups. And it's from these controversies that, uh, that we get much of Augustine's theological literature and his theological distinctives. This is where Augustine really made his, distinctive, his distinctives that we looked at last time more pronounced especially as it comes to ecclesiology and soteriology. Now, as we look at Augustine's controversies, uh, you can see there that uh, this outline that I have before you is a little bit thicker than normal, a little bit more detailed, but I want to look uh, in particular at three controversies that Augustine engaged in throughout his life, namely that of his controversy with the Manichaeans and then uh, the Donatists and then the Pelagians. And as far as I can tell, this is in chronological order uh, in terms of, of when he dealt with these particular groups. And so first of all, I want to look at Augustine's controversy with the Manichaeans. Now for Augustine, uh, his dealings with the Manichaeans was his earliest and really his shortest, uh, his shortest concern, his shortest lived concern. Uh, he spent a good, a good bit more time dealing with the Donatists and especially the Pelagians. Now, uh, who were the Manichaeans? I know some of, some of this, this lecture this morning is going to be a re- review of what we've been over before with uh, Mike's introduction to Augustine's life as well as our look at uh, his, Augustine's theology last week. But just a little bit of review about who the Manichaeans were. They were founded by this man whose name is Manny. He's the namesake of the Manichaeans. He was born around 215 in Babylonia. Now, uh, early on in Manny's life, he received a vision. A vision. I think he was, was very similar to Muhammad, actually. I think he, he received this vision when he was 15, perhaps. Very early. He received a vision to leave the religion of his family and to wait for a number of years Uh, to proclaim himself to the people. And in 242, in the year 242, he proclaimed himself to be the apostle of the true God. In fact, he actually called himself, uh, very blasphemously, the paraclete. Uh, He never claimed for himself deity specifically. Now, I don't see how calling yourself the paraclete is anything but claiming deity for yourself. But that's what he called himself, uh, the apostle of the true God. And he was eventually uh, crucified in the year 276 or 277, uh, not by a Roman emperor, not by any, any Christian, but he was actually crucified by uh, the I, who was the Zoroastrian king of Persia. Uh, Manny, we believe, was at first a Zoroastrian, this very ancient uh, primitive religion of the Middle East. But he eventually uh, left that, left the religion of, of his land, and uh, founded the Manichaean movement. And so he was crucified by that king of Persia. Now, uh, as you remember from two weeks ago, in looking at Augustine's life, Augustine for a brief time was involved in this sect uh, until he met the then leader of the movement. Now, does anybody remember the leader of the Manichaeans that Augustine met, his name? Yes. Ah, yes, it's in the outline. Sorry, giving you the answers here. Uh, yes, Faustus. Uh, yes, Faustus. And he was thoroughly unimpressed with this man. Uh, 
uh, thoroughly unimpressed. And so Augustine was eventually drawn out of this movement into Christianity by the preaching of who? Does anybody remember? The Bishop Ambrose, yes, the Bishop of Milan, uh, that great uh, rhetorician and Christian preacher. Now, what did the Manichaeans teach? Uh, Here's just some basic facts about the Manichaeans. First of all, uh, Manny himself, as well as all the Manichaeans after him, utterly despised Christianity. They hated it. Uh, even, even though they tried to assimilate uh, a fair amount of its teachings. And so, really, their hatred was shown in the fact that they were trying to corrupt Christianity. Uh, it claimed, Manichaeanism claimed to be a rational religion that had no place for the mysteries of the religion of the Bible. And so the Manichaeans, like many uh, heretical movements in that day, were heavily Gnostic. That is G-N-O-S-T-I-C. Now, can anybody uh, briefly remind us or inform us about uh, what does it mean to be a Gnostic? Who were the Gnostics in general? Any takers? Sure. Yes, I mean, that's, that's very good. That's very good. That, that is a significant aspect of their teachings. And, and it stems uh, from their broader theology of, of a secret knowledge. Okay, the, the, the Gnostics, that very name comes from the Greek word for knowledge. And, and these were people who, uh, who were after some sort of secret knowledge that only a select few had and had access to. And um, I'll, I'll just give you a definition of Gnosticism. Uh, by, I think this is Millard Erickson, who I think is still living, an evangelical Baptist. Uh, He says that Gnosticism was a movement in early Christianity beginning already in the first century. Uh, We believe that uh, the Apostle John was dealing with, in fact, we're fairly certain that John was dealing with Gnosticism in 1 John. Because how does he begin 1 John? That which we have seen and touched with our hands. Not some phantom, right? A real Christ. It was a movement in early Christianity beginning already in the first century that, first of all, emphasized a special higher truth that only the more enlightened received from God, and secondly, taught that matter is evil, and thirdly, denied the humanity of Jesus. So, uh, very good job, Anna Marie, in in summarizing that for us. Now, the Gnostics uh, had a fundamentally uh, dualistic view of reality. Uh, Reality for them is, is based in a fundamental principle of good, and a fundamental principle of evil. You have, for the Manichaeans in particular, you have the realm of light, which is ruled by the father of majesty. And then you also have uh, the principle of evil, which is the realm of darkness, ruled by the king of darkness. Now, both of these, it's crucial to understand that in Gnosticism and Manichaeanism, which was a Gnostic religion, uh, both are eternal. Both good and evil are equally eternal, uh, coexistent, fundamental, original to all reality. Now, for the Manichaeans, the earth and all matter is from the realm of darkness. Therefore, in typical Gnostic fashion, all matter, everything physical, is fundamentally evil and should be escaped from. And so the aim of human beings uh, is to escape the darkness by living pure, rational lives free from physical passions and whatever flows 
from or accompanies them. Now, most significant to the Manichaeans' understanding of, is for Augustine, what's most significant and what he tried to combat the most was really the Manichaeans' understanding of what evil is. Uh, for the Manichaeans, evil is an actual substance because, again, matter is fundamentally evil. And so evil is a thing. Uh, all that is matter and related to matter is evil. So that includes all human uh, bodies, appetites, passions, pleasures. And so therefore, since God created the physical, God is, uh, it stands to reason, in some sense, the author of evil. This was part of the Manichaeans' teaching. And so Augustine's response uh, was actually, in, a, in one of his early books, you can see there, uh, De Libero Arbitrio Voluntatis, on the free choice of the will. Now you would expect this to be a response to Pelagius, right? But it actually wasn't. It was a response to the Manichaeans. And in this book, he argues that evil is not a thing. Evil is not a substance. But rather, uh, evil is the absence of something, namely the absence of good. Now you can think, um, it, it, it doesn't make evil any less a reality. And so, for example, if you have a t-shirt uh, that has a hole in it, that hole is a real, it's, it's a real entity, right? Or I'm trying to think of the right word to use. It is real, but the whole itself is actually nothing. It's, it's, it's a whole because it's the absence of, of fabric, correct? And so for Augustine, this is what evil is. Evil for Augustine is neglecting the eternal for the temporal. You can see there in your outline, that was really his definition of what evil is, the neglecting of the eternal for the temporal. It's not neglecting the, the, uh, the spiritual for the physical, but the temporal for the eternal, or the, the eternal for the temporal. And so for Augustine, his response to Manichaeanism is that evil arises not from uh, what is physical, but actually it arises from the soul of man, from the will of man, not because God created him evil. Uh, God created man upright, as Ecclesiastes tells us, but he sought out many schemes. For Augustine, uh, evil arises because God gave man a will. And for Augustine, it was, it was a free will, which Augustine calls an intermediate good by which man achieves the highest good, a happy life. Now, that is, that is a very shallow summary of, of Augustine's response to the Manichaeans, uh, but that was really the, the, the sum and substance of it, is that evil uh, is not inherent to matter. It's not inherent to what is physical, but it actually is a spiritual thing that arises out of the will and soul of a man. Not because God created him that way, but because man is a, is a free, rational creature. Yes? So are all animals, since they're not rational, but since they're physical, under all animals are evil? Well, I mean, if, the, if they're, they're certainly not the highest good. Uh, I... I'm not an expert in Manichaean theology, but certainly if whatever's physical by its very nature is not of the highest good and really is in itself something to be escaped from, something to be, to be uh, fled from through rationality. The Manichaeans had, had a very weird understanding of the origin of the world. They, they believed that the world came about through the conflict of good and evil. And so because of this, <clears throat> they said that there are sparks of divinity and sparks of, of light in the physical world. And interestingly, 
if I'm, I'm kind of recalling this from years ago in, in my Augustine class in seminary, if I remember correctly, they, they believe that certain items in this world contain more light than others. And as far as I'm aware it, that I can remember, they actually believed that uh, one of the things in this world that contained the most light is cucumbers. Um, I'm not sure where they got that. Um, and it's actually very distressing to me because I hate cucumbers. Uh, so I guess I, uh, for a Manichaean, I am, I am not one of the elect. Um, so anyways, it's a very strange thing. Yes, ma'am. So would they have liked embraced like, like stoicism and stuff like that? Or like, like abstinence? And I mean, would they, I, this makes me think of somebody who just wants to be on a hill and have nothing around them. Yeah, they were very severe people. Um, in fact, uh, that, that's kind of characteristic of Gnosticism. Paul addresses this in Colossians chapter 2 when he says, you know, why do you follow the, the principles of the world? Don't, don't taste, don't touch, all this. Uh, you know, don't, don't be like those who glory in, in the suppression of the flesh because, or, or in, um, I can't, I'm, I'm not quoting the exact scripture correctly. But uh, he says, don't, don't follow after those who think that, that by beating their bodies into submission, they actually have some kind of advantage over sin. It, it, just, it just doesn't work. Uh, it does nothing for the suppression of sin. Um, it's arguable that Paul was dealing with a, an early form of Gnosticism there. Very, very severe people. All right, um, so that's, that's the Manichaeans. Let's look at the Donatists. Now, again, some of this is review, uh, so, so bear with me here. Just a little bit of review of what Donatism is. You can see there in your outline. Uh, named after the Christian bishop Donatus Magnus. Now, uh, the Donatists were a schismatic group in the church that existed from around the 300s to the 500s. It's a couple hundred years there who argued, as we looked at last time, that the church must be pure, the visible church must be pure to the, to the degree that anybody who has defected Anybody who is traitorous to the Christian religion because of oppression, because of persecution, uh, should never be permitted back into the church. And the real rub of their theology was their teaching that the efficacy of the sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism is intimately tied to the purity and holiness of the minister who administers them. And so for a Donatist, a baptism that has been administered by um, a, uh, a a priest or a minister who uh, is not up to their standards of holiness or who has once defected from the faith and come back is not a valid baptism. And so this led, uh, very understandably, to serious, serious schism and consternation in the church, uh, particularly in North Africa, where Augustine resided. And so Augustine's response, just very briefly here to the Donatists, uh, he, was, he was very, very severe to the Donatists, and I, I believe rightly so, even though, as we'll see in just a moment, he perhaps went a little bit too far uh, in, in a particular area of his dealings with them. But uh, as we discussed last time, Augustine, in response to this, developed uh, a particular aspect of his sacramentology, namely, you can see there in your outline, uh, the teaching, that Latin phrase there of ex opera operato. Now, somebody remind us about what that means, not just what it says, but what does it mean? What does it mean? Uh, what does ex opera operato mean? In Latin, it means from the working it has worked. Now, what is, what is that? What's the implication of that? Were you about to raise your hand, Brian? There's no point yet. Let me say. Oh. 
basically means that they're they're kind of op simply way to put it is they kind of operate automatically. Yes, yes. The sacrament's efficacy is not tied to the one administering it, but is actually uh, it's, it's effectual in and of themselves. And so, as Jeff said, uh, these things, the baptism and Lord's Supper, work as it were automatically by by the the pouring or sprinkling of water or dipping into water or uh, by the partaking of the bread and the wine. The things that are promised are actually affected. And so, baptism. This would again. I'm I'm not sure if Augustine himself held to this. But eventually, uh, the Roman Catholic Church would take this ex opere operato and, and teach that baptism actually affects regeneration. Some Lutherans actually ended up uh, bringing, on the, bringing this into their theology. And so some Lutherans believe in what we call baptismal regeneration. Now, uh, Augustine's response to the Donatist is very interesting here. Uh, did not just end in writing tracts and books and letters. Uh, very controversially, Augustine actually appealed to the arm of the state to deal with these Donatists. I, I said a, a while back, several lessons ago, you need to remember that especially in this time, in the, in the early period of the church, theology was very intimately tied with politics, as we saw with Athanasius and Arius. And Augustine appealed. He called upon the Roman state to deal with the Donatist. He cited in a letter of his the parable of the banquet that Jesus tells us in Luke. And he wrote uh, to, to this man, he said, You are of opinion that no one should be compelled to follow righteousness. And yet you read that the householder said to his servants, Whomsoever ye shall find, compel them to come in. Again, the Donatists were very schismatic. They would not join the broader church. They would have nothing to do with them. And here Augustine is writing concerning the Donatists, compel them to come in, uh, which for him meant use force. And so because of this, the Donatists would later be fairly severely persecuted by uh, the Roman state and actually persecuted to a degree to which Augustine would eventually protest. Uh, he would actually protest the violence that was brought against the Donatists uh, that he fought so, uh, so valiantly. And th this proved to be really a, uh, a very controversial aspect of Augustine's political thought. We can think about, like, how, how, would, how would Augustine's call upon the state here to deal with the Donatists by force have echoes throughout church history, particularly as we get up toward uh, the Reformation. There's a particular uh, historical event that I'm thinking of here. The Spanish Inquisition? Yeah. Uh, could this have been, I, I don't want to say a, a cause, but could this kind of thought be a, an underlying assumption that led to things like the Spanish Inquisition? Uh, compel them to come in. I think that's a, that's a question mark that, that won't be resolved really until uh, the new heavens and new earth when we get to uh, hopefully speak with Augustine uh, if we're not too preoccupied with uh, Jesus and, and Paul and uh, Moses and all them. So, yeah. Well, I was just, um, in English history, when Henry VIII created the Church of England, didn't 
persecuted the Catholics. And then when Queen Mary uh, took over, she persecuted the Protestants. And then Queen Elizabeth took back over, and then they persecuted the Catholics again. And it, it was just like, you've got to be pure, you've got to be right, and the state is going to enforce it, and that just never works well. Yeah, and and in that case, you know, there there was also a lot of politics involved. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily. I mean, certainly for Henry VIII, it was not about the purity of the church. For him, it was uh, it was it was power and personal with him. Yeah, he he had some some affectionate ends he wanted to 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 meet, and so yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, in August, I don't think you've said this before, but it's, uh, as Bishop of Hippo, which he did not, he wanted to be the ivory tower guy, he actually had some civil functionary. Mm-hmm. He had the basically the duty to adjudicate a lot of these civil, what we would call civil cases. Mm-hmm. So that's probably what the medieval period, you know, from Augustine all the way up to the Reformation, you have this perpetual kind of overlap between the ecclesiastical and civil that wouldn't get fully worked out until really the, the reformers and the pre-reformers that begin to basically question to say, well, wait, where are the limits? What, you know, early <clears throat> hyperism, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, yeah, which, which really, I guess, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a historian, but I, I guess met its, met its, um, its peak at American separation of church and state, right? Which doesn't mean separation of Christ and state, but 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 we have a, a very distinct institutional separation of church and state. The church does not rule in the civil sphere. The state does not rule in the uh, in the in the ecclesiastical sphere. Well, I'm just going to say Calvin's debate with the city fathers in Geneva, where mm-hmm. they said we can say who can come to the Lord's table, and Calvin said no, you can't. Yep, which led to his expulsion. Yeah. Exactly. His, yeah. Um, thankfully, the their foolishness ended up causing them to, to call him back, to beg him to come back, even though Calvin said, I would rather die a thousand deaths than go back to Geneva. Um, anyways, that's, that's a story for our Reformation Church History course. Amen. Coming to a theater near you. Um, okay, so lastly, lastly, let's talk about the Pelagians, and then I'll, uh, I'll open up the floor for questions. So the Pelagians. Now, uh, if you'll remember... As we were, as we've been talking about church history, uh, there have been many cases in theologians writing against certain positions where uh, they actually never met or talked to or dealt with personally the people against whom they were writing. And so, for example, I'm thinking of of somebody like Tertullian writing against Marcion. Tertullian came after Marcion. Uh, he never talked to him, never met him, never dealt with him personally. Rather, he was dealing with uh, his followers. Now, with Augustine and the Pelagians, Augustine actually lived at the same time as the namesake of the movement, namely uh, the, uh, the, um, the man Pelagius. Now, you can see in your outline there that Pelagius, he lived from around 354 to 418. Now, what's significant about those dates? particularly the first one. What year was Augustine born? 354, right? So they they were actually exact contemporaries, Augustine and Pelagius. Now, a little bit about Pelagius. Uh, 
Pelagius was uh, probably born in uh, the British Isles. Again, he was an exact contemporary of Augustine, although born many, 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 many hundreds of miles away. Uh, he didn't quite live as long as Augustine. Eventually, uh, Pelagius moved to Rome. And he ministered in Rome from around the year 380 to 410, so around 30 years. And he achieved some a fair amount of prominence in Rome. He was a, a highly educated man. He was uh, well-versed in the Bible, well-versed in theology, although, as we'll see in just a moment, uh, very, very, very wrong in, in a large part of his, his theology. But he was well-versed in theology, well-trained. Uh, he knew Latin very well, unlike Augustine. He knew Greek very well. And so it's not like, you know, when we talk about these these heretics, I just want to encourage you not to think of them as, as idiots. Uh, these, these people were, were highly educated. They were very intelligent. Uh, they were just, uh, I, mean, I mean, we can say they were just wicked. Uh, they just didn't believe God's word and what they, what they read in it. And so uh, he ministered in Rome from 380 to 410. He lived a life of extreme uh, personal austerity. We could say he lived really the life of, of, a, of, a, of an ascetic, right? Somebody who beat their body into submission, who denied uh, themselves many, many physical, uh, all physical pleasures, many physical necessities for the sake of living uh, a holy life. And Pelagius ended up taking great issue with Augustine's statement in the first paragraph of his uh, confessions. Actually, no, it's not in the first paragraph. I'm thinking of a different quote. But he says this in his confessions. He says, uh, give what you command. He's praying uh, to the Lord. He says, give what you command and command what you will. Pelagius took great exception to this because he thought that it gave too little emphasis to human responsibility. I mean, because what was Augustine praying there? What was the underlying assumptions? Well, um, Lord, you command all these things that I ought to do. You command the way I ought to live, but I don't have the power in and of myself to do it, and so you need to give these things that you command. Pelagius took great exception to this. It, uh, it did not give any emphasis to human responsibility in his mind before the Lord. And so Pelagius, as he was ministering, he was dealing, along with having this issue with, with uh, Augustine, uh, he was dealing with significant questions that were arising in the church at this time. Uh, some of which are related to the Manichaean error. So, for example, if matter is not inherently evil, then where did sin come from? What is sin? Uh, how, if at all, was mankind affected by Adam's sin? How do we be- what do we believe about unborn infants who have not committed any sin but still die, which is the wages of sin? Uh, do human beings sin freely, as Adam did, Ad- Adam did, or are they coerced by a fallen nature? And if the latter is true, how does this escape the charge that Gnosticism has made against Christianity? That is, that God is the author of evil. Or perhaps, uh, if human beings are held liable for Adam's sin, then how can God be just in doing this? How can he hold Adam's posterity liable for something that they personally did not do? Now, uh, this led, in Pelagius' dealing with these questions, this led to some particular aspects of his theology that would uh, be denounced later on as heretical. I want to look at two of these aspects of Pelagius' teaching. 
First of all, again, some of this is reviewed, just a little bit more detail here. First of all, his thinking about original sin. Now, what is, uh, and I'm, I, I would love an answer, uh, what is original sin? What do we mean when we talk about original sin? That because Adam sinned, all his posterity had sin as born into them, the desire to sin and the ability to not do good in God's sight. Mm-hmm. That's just the way we're born. Yes, yes. It's, it's the effect, very good, it's the effect that Adam's sin had upon his posterity, which consists in two, and this is something I want you to remember, original sin, original sin consists in two things. First of all, guilt, and second of all, corruption. Guilt and corruption. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer 18 describes original sin as the sinfulness of that estate whereinto man fell, which it says consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin and the want or the lack of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin. Yes? And, and is not the God's answer for those two things, the guilt would be the imputation of Christ's righteousness and the sin and corruption is dealt with regeneration, sanctification, and Yes, that's exactly correct. But of course, when you're somebody like Pelagius, there's another answer. You just deny original sin. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah. Uh, so a summary of Pelagius' teaching regarding original sin, you can see there on the back of your outline, I'm taking this from a very good book called God Has Spoken by uh, a church historian who's still living, teaches in uh, Alabama, Beeson Divinity School, Sanford University. That's in Alabama, Correct. Okay, yeah. Uh, God has spoken. Gerald Bray. Here is his summary of Pelagius' teaching. First of all, every human being is born in the innocent state in which Adam and Eve were created. Secondly, human beings sin because they do what Adam did, and so they die as he died. Thirdly, everyone who has sins needs Christ as his Savior and must therefore be baptized. Fourthly, children who die but have not committed an actual sin belong to Christ. And then fifthly, infants who have not sinned do not need to be baptized, though they may be. Now, of course, uh, the, the biggest things that, that we as Reformed Christians would take issue with is, uh, number one, every human being is born in the, in the innocent state in which Adam and Eve were created. And then, uh, secondly, uh, human beings sin because they do what Adam did, and so they die as he died. Now, uh, you can see there that this theology is internally inconsistent. How so? Well, uh, if human beings sin because they do what Adam did and therefore die as he died, then the question remains, well, what do we do about infants who haven't committed actual sin in the, in the likeness of, of Adam? They still, infants still die in the womb. Infants still die uh, not long after they're born, before they commit actual sin. So in, in my judgment there, it's, uh, it's internally contradictory. And so that's his, uh, his understanding of original sin. He also has uh, a particular understanding of human freedom. Uh, Pelagius had read Augustine's writings about free will, namely his book there on the first page, uh, On the Free Choice of the Will, which was against whom? The Manichaeans. Uh, Pelagius, interestingly, uh, quoted uh, Augustine in his book, in, in Pelagius' book on nature, he quoted Augustine favorably 
which, in my understanding, as I've, as I've read the account, actually incensed Augustine. Uh, he hated the fact that Pelagius quoted him favorably. It would be like, uh, you know, somebody quoting something that, like Rob Bell quoting Mike Myers approvingly. Uh, I'm sure that would, not, uh, that would not please Mike in the slightest. Uh, so this is what's going on with Augustine. Now, Augustine, in his book on retractions, a very, very late book, said this in response to this. He said, Do not let the Pelagians boast as if I had been pleading their cause. Because in these books, he's talking about on free choice of the will, in these books I said much in favor of free will, which was necessary for the purpose that I had in view in that discussion, which he's talking about his controversy with the Manichaeans. For the Pelagians are a new brand of heretics who assert the freedom of the will in such a way as to leave no room for the grace of God, since they say it is given to us according to our merits. Now, this, this goes back to what I said last time. Augustine believed in free will. Uh, reformed people believe in free will. It's just a particular understanding of free will, right? It's a will that is free to do whatever, uh, whatever a person desires, right? Uh, it's, it's inconceivable that, that the will would act apart from the desires. And the desires are rooted in the human nature. And if human nature is fallen, the desires are fallen. Therefore, the will can only will uh, sin apart from regeneration. And so Augustine says here that uh, his issue with the Pelagians was not their belief in the free will, but rather the fact that they press it to such a point that they leave no room for the grace of God. If you remember what we talked about Augustine last time, uh, he taught free will to leave uh, no room for any human merit whatsoever. And it was all God's grace. And so the Pelagian teaching on human freedom, you can see summarized in your outline there. First of all, similar to what was said before, man is born in the same state as Adam was. Uh, Man has equal ability to do good or evil. He is under no constraint, uh, inward or outward, to do do either. Uh, Thirdly, man is capable of living sinlessly, although this is rare, Pelagius admits. Uh, Augustine would say, yeah, you're, you're right. It is, it's very rare. Only one man ever lives sinlessly. Uh, and fourthly, uh, salvation is on the basis of merits and good works and thus can be lost through sin. Now, uh, a large portion of Augustine's writings are classified as, quote-unquote, anti-Pelagian writings. So you can see some examples there. Uh, I'm not going to embarrass myself by uh, butchering the Latin here, but you can see I just gave you the Latin name, the English translation of the Latin title, and then the years in which these books were written. And you can see that some of them took uh, several years to write. You can see, first of all, uh, on nature and grace, on grace and free will, on the predestination of the saints, and on the gift of perseverance. Now you can see that you can see a lot of the content of Augustine's response to Pelagians just by the titles of the books themselves. And so I just want to summarize basically what, uh, what he argued against the Pelagians. Again, some of this is review, but it's just a summary of Augustine's response to Pelagius and his followers. Uh, first of all, you can see there in, uh, on the back of your outline, little Roman numeral three, Arabic numeral two, man inherited both guilt and corruption from Adam. 
both guilt and corruption. Secondly, human beings sin because they are sinners. What did Pelagius say? Yeah, human beings are sinners because they sin. And so therefore, if you just don't sin, you never become a sinner. Uh, Augustine said, absolutely not. Uh, Human beings sin because they are sinners. Thirdly, uh, since man's will is bound to the desires of his fallen nature, he needs a new nature. And this requires sovereign regeneration on God's part with nothing contributed by man whatsoever. And so this presupposes, on God's part, sovereign election, sovereign predestination. Again, these, this, this decreeing act of God, apart, as, as Paul says in Romans 9, uh, apart from works, uh, before anybody had done anything good or bad. And then finally, uh, once man is regenerate, he can never fall away from such a state. And so you can see there on uh, his, his teaching on the perseverance of the saints. Interestingly enough, you can see there uh, his book on the gift of perseverance. This is actually the last book that he wrote was on perseverance, the last of 130-some-odd books. And so we can see there, uh, even in the title of, uh, of Augustine's book there, how by God's grace, he persevered through uh, not just his own sin and guilt and corruption by God's grace, but also persevered against uh, a long life of arduous argumentation and writing and ministry and uh, protecting the church, watching over the flock of God against error and heresy. Now, the result of Augustine's dealings with, uh, with the Pelagians was that uh, during Augustine's life, you see there the Council of Carthage in 418, uh, unequivocally and uh, unequivocally and decisively condemned Pelagius and his followers. And ever since then, uh, Pelagianism has been condemned as a heresy in both the East and the West, which carried over directly into uh, the Reformation and, uh, and Reformation theology. Now, uh, are there any questions or comments before we talk about our conclusion? Just a couple of closing applications here. Yes, sir. Uh, I heard R.C. Sproul say, say that the Roman Catholic Church was inherently Pelagian. That would make sense since what you said about justification in this. I was wondering uh, how it was able to, even though it was, put, it was denounced by, you said East and West by Carthage, your last statement, how it so um, I'd be interested to hear the context and to hear exactly what Sproul said there. I'm not, I'm not questioning your quotation of him, but my understanding of, of Roman Catholic theology and then also later Arminian theology in response to, uh, to Calvin and Beza and, and the, Dutch, the Dutch Reformed theologians, uh, my understanding is that their systems are, are not Pelagian but semi-Pelagian. Uh, in that they they believe that in some sense man is regarded by God for good because of something he is or does in some sense although whatever uh, whatever salvation 
is given to them is initiated ent entirely by God. It must be cooperated with on the part of man. We're going to get to that in just a moment when we talk about how Pelagianism uh, didn't die with Pelagius. Does, does that make sense? Um, and I think I've heard Sproul say that about, about semi-Pelagianism. I, I wonder if, if, you, if you could pull up where, if you, or if you could uh, show me where he said that it was Roman Catholicism was like full-on Pelagian. I'd be interested. Yeah, at that point I could see. I mean, I, I retract. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm not. Again, I'm not. It's not like a challenge to you. I would just. I would. I would love to hear it and, and, and to hear why he would say that. I'm sorry. I retract nonetheless. Uh, well, that's the the, the first uh, the, the first sentence in in Brian's statement of retractions and following the footsteps of Augustine. <laughs> All right. Um, any other questions or comments on what we've talked about so far? I just have a couple of, of closing applications here. All right. Well, um, you see there at the bottom of your outline, uh, as, as with pretty much all heresies, uh, there's nothing new under the sun. I just want to, uh, to encourage you toward this understanding of church history. We tend to think sometimes that when these things are dealt with, as we've studied in the past, when Arianism was dealt with, when Monarchianism was dealt with, when Unitarianism was modalism, Sabellianism, when all this stuff was dealt with, when Pelagians, the Manichaeans, and the Donatists are dealt with decisively by church councils and men like Augustine and Athanasius, Tertullian, we think that, well, that's just the end of the matter. Uh, that was in the past. That's not something we really have to deal with today. Uh, if, if that is your thinking here this morning, I, I would encourage you otherwise. Uh, Satan is a master deceiver. The same error throughout church history crops up again and again and again and again. Just in different outward manifestations. And so, for example, Arianism. We talked about that a while ago. Where does, where does Arianism crop up again? and is actually still uh, extremely prominent in our, in our nation. Where does it crop up? Jehovah's Witnesses. Did I hear somebody say that? Yeah, Jehovah's Witnesses. Last time I checked, the Jehovah's Witnesses, which is an Aryan cult, uh, has somewhere around 12 million members. I mean, it's a massive organization. 12 million members. The OPC has, what, 30,000 uh, so you're talking, what, 500 times the size of the OPC? Arians, heretics. <laughs> so we're talking 1,700 years later. Uh, modalism, oneness Pentecostalism, right? Prominent in this area. Monarchianism and Unitarianism. I told you last time about how I was so appalled when I went to Trinity Seminary. Right across the street from Trinity Seminary is Deerfield Unitarian Church. It's still around. Well, uh, Pelagianism did not die with Pelagius. There was a modern Pelagian that was uh, actually very influential on modern evangelicalism. And his name was Charles Finney. He was the father of modern revivalism and in many ways uh, heavily influenced 
modern evangelicalism. He called, and I, this is a direct quotation from his systematic theology, page 179. He called the doctrine of original sin, quote, an anti-scriptural and nonsensical dogma. Is a Pelagian. Anybody who denies original sin is by definition a Pelagian. This is why liberalism is so serious an error. Uh, it believes and teaches uh, man's fundamental goodness. This teaching has infiltrated, sadly, much of so-called evangelical theology. Just to Brian's point a, uh, a moment ago, Roman Catholic theology and much of what we would call uh, evangelical theology ended up being semi-Pelagian. That man is in some sense, it doesn't matter how much of a degree, but to some degree is responsible for his salvation, whether or not, you know, as, as, as the most conservative Arminians would say, even if it's just that God looks through the corridors of time and says, oh, that man is going to believe, I'm going to elect him. In some sense, that man's salvation is dependent upon something he did. That's semi-Pelagianism. It's not full-blown Pelagianism, but it's certainly semi-Pelagianism. Any belief that teaches that, that salvation is a, is a result of a cooperation between the grace of God and uh, the free will of man. Semi-Pelagianism. Now, Reformed theology very much indebted to Augustine is much more severe with regard to the nature of fallen man. Apart from regeneration, Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 6, paragraph 3. By this original corruption, we are utterly indisposed, the confession says, utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, not just some good, all good, and wholly inclined, not just bent a little way, but wholly inclined to all evil, uh, this is something that was retrieved uh, virtually explicitly from Augustine. Now, this may seem harsh and pessimistic, but uh, who, just to give you an example, imagine, imagine you had a, a brain aneurysm. Would you want to be told that you only have a migraine? Certainly not. If, if, I had a, if I had an aneurysm, I, I, would, I would want to be told the truth, even though it's dark and, and sobering. Uh, aspirin will not help an aneurysm. In the same way, free will, in the Pelagian sense, will not remedy your sinfulness before the thrice holy God. And so you need sovereign resurrection to life. And this is why it's important to study church history. It's not just to, to get a, a bunch of facts in our minds. And it's not only even uh, to see God's work in the church, but it is to, it's, it's to inform us, to equip us better, to be able to, uh, to understand and to discern these errors that crop up again and again and again throughout history. Um. And so hopefully that is an encouragement to you to be students of, of, of history and especially of church history. Uh, it'll be of, of great help to you. I remember I've, I've told many people that in seminary, the most helpful classes that I took in seminary were my church history courses because in it you had uh, 
pastoral theology, systematic theology, exegetical theology, biblical theology, all gathered into one, and you saw it worked out in living detail, like actual situations. This is why uh, you know, we as a, as a session thought it was a good idea to, to go through church history. Uh, it's not just so that we can know names and vocabulary and dates, but uh, that this helps us be better, stronger, more equipped and informed Christians. So, uh, any, any questions, comments? Any of you would like to make? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, so um, that, that's a good question. So, um, I mean, obviously the printing press wouldn't be invented for another thousand years. And so the scriptures were not widely disseminated like, uh, like we have today. You know, this right here uh, didn't exist in those times. Uh, in fact, barely existed during the Reformation. Uh, and so, you know, not everybody had copies of the scriptures. And if you wanted one, it had to be, it had to be hand copied. Either you had to do it yourself or you had to pay somebody a lot of money, a ton of money. You know, I, I bought this on Amazon for like eight bucks. Uh, most people couldn't afford what it took back then. But men like Pelagius, who was a monk, men like Augustine, who was a bishop, uh, they, they had access to the scriptures. Uh, they had access to the whole Bible. They read the Bible. Uh, now, in their argumentation, they did argue from the scriptures, but they were also, because of just the world that they lived in that was just swimming, swimming in, in philosophy and, and secularism and, and all of these other world religions, uh, they did, I mean, they, they weren't blank slates. Augustine was not a blank slate when he, came, when he became a Christian. He was a former Manichaean. Uh, and so he was a former Greek philosopher. Or, or Latin philosopher. And so when, when he argues for certain things and when you read his works, it doesn't, it doesn't read like Calvin. It doesn't read like B.B. Um, Warfield, where they're dealing with particular, exegeting particular passages. But rather, it, it, it reads like a work of philosophy. And so that's not to say that, that these men were just arguing from philosophy or just you know trying to to take all the, the erring thoughts of the day and, and try to Christianize them, but they were using the tools and the, and the vocabulary and the methods that, that they had at their disposal. Uh, and and Augustine, Augustine was one of those men. He, uh, he, he used those philosophical tools, although he, he certainly was, was supremely affected by, by Scripture, which he read, um, I imagine, vociferously. Does that, does that help answer your question? Brian. That's a good question. Uh, Jerome, if I remember correctly, was a contemporary of Augustine. In fact, I think they wrote. They, 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 they wrote letters to one another. And so I think the, the Vulgate was written in the 400s, or written, was translated in the 400s, I think. I, I'm happy to be corrected on that. Sorry for not being as, as versed on that as I should be. Uh, maybe Jeff will look it up for us. <laughs> and his little 
black box of all knowledge. Yes? I found it fascinating that uh, Pelagius died in 418, the uh, Council of Carthage was 418, and yet three of Augustine's response to Pelagianism, three of his books were written after 418, mm -hmm. so it was obviously still a big issue, even though it had been, quote, officially dealt with, it still had to be dealt with. Yeah, it's actually really sad. Uh, one of, one of the most prominent defenders of Pelagianism after Pelagius was named Julian. And Julian was actually, and, and his family were actually intimate friends with Augustine. And uh, I don't know the whole story behind that, but, but it, it actually, it caused him a lot of grief that, that he was, that Julian was one of the great defenders of Pelagius. And so that, that's why even after Pelagius was dead and after Carthage sunk the knife in to make sure he was dead, uh, Augustine still had to deal with this. All right, last last question or, or comment. I think I saw Brian. That wasn't Julian the Apostate. No, that was a, Julian the Apostate was an emperor. Uh, no, this was Julian of, of some such place or another. Um, that's a that's a direct quote from my church history book. <laughs> Julian from some such place. All right. Well, um, let me uh, let me pray for us and then we'll move into worship. Our God, we are so thankful for your sovereign grace. And we're thankful for the clarity with which Augustine wrote and the, 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 the valiant way he defended uh, the gospel against uh, all these forms of error. And Lord, we pray that, that you would uh, warm our affections uh, for the Lord Jesus Christ through these things, that we would rejoice and praise your name for the fact that were, uh, were you not to intervene in our lives, were you not to place your hand upon us, uh, were you not to uh, sovereignly change our hearts. We would be left in our sin and we would have no hope. Lord, uh, we pray that as we move into worship, uh, that you would uh, remind us of these things even as we sing your praises and offer our prayers to you, hear from your word. Lord, please bless us and uh, help us in spirit and in truth to praise the name of the one who so gloriously saved us, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.